let's continue our conversation from last week. Last week, we noted that a local church essentially has three identities, and this is incredibly important for us as we build again. The first identity is the theological, the theological distinction of a church. First identity or distinction of a church is how does that church view God? And then subsequently, important matters like life and creation and humanity, the afterlife, Jesus, the Bible, all the important stuff for Christians. Churches have theological identities. We're going to come back to that one. Second identity that we're going to pick up next week, very, very important, and a, a big shout out to Ter Teresa Graney back in the back. Teresa led our leadership council and staff today in some revisioning and some real uh, profoundly good practical work. Four hours this morning, we're going to meet again for four hours in the morning, and a lot of what we're dealing with is the second identity of a church. Every church not only has a theological identity, but it has an identity of practical function. How well does it do the stuff of church? Uh, there are certain things that regardless of a church's theological identity, it has to do well. Just like a restaurant. It doesn't matter if you're a Thai restaurant or a burger joint. There are some things that are common denominators you have to do well. There are eight categories uh, of practical function in the church that every church, doesn't matter if you're Methodist or Baptist, progressive or conservative, you have to do these things well. And we're working on all eight of these right now. It's a big part of why we're meeting with Teresa. Next week when we talk about them practically, you'll see this is where you get to plug in. But these eight things, these eight systems, it's almost like the body has systems, uh, lymphatic systems and circulatory systems and digestive systems. Well, a church has to do these things. Church has to do children and youth, congregational care, uh, by congregational care, pastoral care, hospitals, visitations, funerals, social action and justice. Some people call that outreach. Some people call it missions. We call it social action or justice. Fiscal generosity and responsibility have to do finance as well. Uh, education, spiritual formation, especially for adults. We've already mentioned children and youth. Communications, marketing. You have to communicate internally and externally. Uh, you want a religious term for that or a Christian term, it's called proclamation. You got a great message, you got to get it out. Relationship building, things like meal groups, we've called them care groups or life groups before. Softballs, playing tomorrow. You guys playing softball tomorrow? Yeah, well, three of our softball players. I guess they're counting tomorrow's game, Butch, as church. So, I mean, it's a weekend involvement with church people, so I, it works. Relationship building and then worship service. Those are the eight systems of a church. Doesn't matter if you're liberal or conservative. You've got to do those things well. We'll talk about that identity next week. And then the third identity may not be as important as the first two, but it's an interesting identity, and lots of churches have this identity. Some don't, but it's the specialty identity. There are churches that are known for specific things. Uh, the church that I mentored at here in Nashville called Christ Church. Uh, those of you that went to Christ Church, what was Christ Church's specialty? What was the thing it was known for? Yeah, it's music, it's choir. Except when I was there, it was preaching. But other than that, the other, no. I never, it was never known for preaching. We all went, and it was known as that church with the choir. Um, so that's the third identity. The third identity is not something you set out to do. 
I, I suppose you can, but generally you don't set out to develop a specialty. That just kind of happens organically. And at some point in the church's life, you look back and say, that's the thing that we kind of stand out and do extra special. The second identity, that identity of just the stuff of church, from children's ministry to relationship building to fiscal responsibility, second identity takes hard work, work that we're already doing, and next week's message is going to be devoted to this second identity and the building of infrastructure. In six to ten months, it's highly likely that the lease to sell of our building will be completed, and at that point, this congregation will have in excess of a million dollars to be responsible for. At that point, we will be very seriously considering how we move back to a Sunday morning service somewhere in our own location. Now, it may not happen in six to ten months, but that's the prospect. At that point, we will be considering again what kind of scenario, exactly where we go, how we go, and I think all of us will be relieved to get back to a Sunday morning format. But we'll get back into a place, we'll build that place out, and that will be a structure for us. But fortuitous is the fact that right now in this church, the kindness of unity, they've given us a space where we're not building that external structure, but we do need to give ourselves very committedly to building infrastructure so that when we go to where we're going, we will have an infrastructure and those eight systems will be working profoundly well. Can you say amen? So that's what we need to do while we're here. Today I want to finish speaking and it may lap over into next week just a bit, but I want to finish speaking to our first identity, our theological identity. Interestingly, I believe our theological identity will have a direct impact on that third specialty identity that I was talking about earlier. I think that the thing that we will excel at and, became, and become known for and already are known for missionally as a church is this work of theology. First of all, I cannot tell you how much I believe personally that the Christian church is in need of a theological reformation. I don't think at its first reformation the church was any more need than it, pro pro than it presently is. We call that the Protestant Reformation. Say it again, I believe the Christian church is in desperate need of a theological reformation. Secondly, and thankfully, I believe that reformation is happening. I believe it's been building for decades, even a couple of centuries now. And thirdly, I believe, and I don't think this is presumptuous, but I believe Grace Point and churches like us are and are going to be even more a central player in that reformation. I really do. Now, in terms of theology, when I talk about our role theologically and our identity theologically, first thing I want to say is, in terms of theology, we proclaim and teach what we believe to be the good news or the gospel. We believe in God there is good news, and we believe that good news is life-changing, and we believe it is transformative. I, I will say this, we do not believe the good news is that a talking snake convinced two people to eat a fruit and every baby born since then deserves to burn forever. And that baby needs an interruptive salvific act to reunite them to God. We do not believe that is the good news. 
but we believe there is a better news, a better news even taught by Scripture that is life-changing and transformative. So on a local congregational level, the reality is we want to see as many lives transformed by the gospel as possible. So when people say, well, numbers aren't really that important, I understand that. But if numbers equate with people, we do want to see as many people engaged by the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, as possible. That's why next week's conversation, our second identity, the identity of how well we do practical infrastructure, is incredibly important because our infrastructure needs to be marked by excellence. Because the gospel is excellent. And the gospel deserves to be proclaimed, dispensed, packaged, channeled in an excellent form. Everything from Sunday morning versus Saturday night to the right location, all of that is because what we believe to be the gospel, we also believe it deserves the best possible channel we can give it to get out there to people. Can you say amen? You can't. Okay. Um, Y'all aren't practiced on the amen. Sometimes I have Pentecostal flashbacks. Forgive me. It just happens. So number one, we proclaim the good news at Grace Point. The second thing we have to do in terms of theological identity, this church has to do, is we have to recognize and step into our role as both an inspiration for and a model for the Christian church writ large. We are a reforming church. And as such, we are a laboratory. We might even be the guinea pig in that laboratory and reforming churches have always been a part of the Christian churches. Reforming churches often aren't large, but reforming churches make large impacts. And we are a reforming church, and the eyes of the church are on us. And we need to create a template for progressive churches everywhere. I can't tell you how many people from around the country call me and say we need a church like this in Birmingham or Topeka or Little Rock. What we are saying theologically is where the Christian church is going. I'll say that again. What this church is saying theologically is where the Christian church is going. So I want to make clear what our theology is. I want to make clear what our view of God, Jesus, creation, humanity, the Bible, salvation. I want to make clear what that is. I want to make clear what we believe to be the gospel. Here is Grace Point's doctrine in a nutshell. This is the point of reformation that I believe the church is shifting on. I'll back up and rehearse just for a couple of minutes the highlights of our series from the first of the year regarding progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity is a branch of progressive religion. Progressive religion includes every major world religion in its progressive form. All right, am I ringing? Is it not getting better? Am I ringing bad? Should I go to the handheld or am I okay? Y'all okay? All right, part of our $1.2 million will be spent on a sound system, right? Uh, we should applaud the folks who are working as hard as they can right now on this. This is a tough job. Progressive Christianity is a branch of progressive religion. Progressive religion is a branch of progressive spirituality. Please hear me, this is important. Progressive Christianity recognizes itself as a grand branch of progressive spirituality. Progressive spirituality holds three fundamental tenets, three essential tenets. One, 
people who believe progressive spirituality believe that God, the ground of all being, the primal mover, the source, the higher power, the creator, call this what you want, juxtapose alphabetical digits, however you want to propose them, but the source of all things, we call that God. Progressive spirituality says God is a mystery. A mystery to be explored, but not defined. A mystery to be engaged, but not captured. A mystery to be enjoyed, not feared. Progressive spirituality believes God is a mystery to be explored, engaged, and enjoyed. Secondly, progressive Christianity believes that all that exists is the creation and the gift of God. Now think about this. All that exists is the gift of God. And third, progressive spirituality says as a part of that gift, our lives, as a part of that gift, our lives are to be mutually enjoyed with respect for one another as well as everything that exists. Progressive spirituality, God is mystery. Creation is the gift of God, and life as a part of that creation should be mutually enjoyed with the other recipients of that gift. Progressive spirituality divides into two camps. One camp of progressive spirituality plays those tenets out in a religious setting, a formal structure. Some people who are progressive spiritualists believe that progressive spirituality is best nurtured and practiced via a formal system of religion. Other people, and some of you have been those people, have practiced progressive spirituality in a non-formal, non-systemic, non-religious form. For those who go the systemic or the religious route, progressive religious practice happens when an individual or a group of people uses a particular system of religion or a religious modality to express the fundamental tenets of progressive spirituality. We simply say we believe those three things and we are going to express them in this religious form. And whatever religious form we pick, whether it's Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism, Buddha, Buddha, Buddhism, Islam, whichever it is, we are going to get those three things said and we believe our religion has the capacity and even its central message is those three things. I'll tell you about every major world religion. Every major world religion may be expressed in progressive forms as well as traditional forms. A lot of people don't realize there are progressive Muslims. There are progressive Jews. There are progressive Buddhists. So there are progressive and traditional forms of every religion. And interestingly, progressive Christians, progressive Jews, progressive Mus Muslims often feel more kinship with progressive adherents of another religion than they do the traditional adherents of their own religion. I have a friend in this town who is a Ted, he's a progressive Muslim, and he feels no kinship with extremist Muslims, and he feels an absolute brother to me. So progressive adherents of different religions often feel great kinship because they are using their religion to express the same fundamental tenets of progressive spirituality. The thing that differentiates these different religions, progressive Jews from progressive Christians to progressive Buddhists, is each religion 
has distinct narratives, vocabularies, and symbols that they use. We use different symbols, vocabulary, and narratives than the other religions. But the reality is, I use the example sometime of a Montana town that literally lives not just on the north border of Montana, but on the very most northern border of the continental U.S. on the Canadian border, what Saskatchewan or Alberta. So it lives on the Canadian border. And across the border is a Canadian town, a Saskatchewan town, and those two towns literally share a border. Now, they share a country border, but they also share a cultural border. <clears throat> Tell me, the Montana town that shares a border with a Canadian town, does that little town feel more similar look more similar to the Canadian town or a town in southern Mississippi. Now it shares a country with the town in Mississippi. It shares a culture with the town right across the line in Canada. And so that's why many people in progressive Christianity live on the border with progressives from other religions and we feel very much kinship with them and yet some of the extremists when Westboro stood outside of our church a few years ago and held up hateful signs did anybody feel that they were even sharing our religion with us I mean it's like an entirely different religion so progressive Christianity takes the narrative the vocabulary and the symbols of Christianity and believes those things reinforce that God is mystery to be explored and enjoyed that life is gift to be mutually shared and progressive spirituality in the form of progressive Christianity literally makes this distinction from traditional Christianity here it is progressive Christianity divides from traditional conservative Christianity on the grounds of this idea. It is not Christology. It's not how you see Jesus. Earlier this year, we looked at the spectrum of progressive Christianity as it relates to how we view Jesus Christ. There are people here that hold to a very fixed Trinitarian Orthodox model there are people here that have other views of Jesus, but they are devotedly all followers of Jesus, of Jesus. So progressive Christians can see Jesus in varied ways with devotion. But the thing that differentiates us from conservative Christianity is this message, and this is the point that the church is reforming on. Progressive Christianity believes in inherent union, and this is huge. Steve, progressive Christianity believes in inherent union. That means we believe that people are born in absolute union with the divine. Traditional Christianity believes in inherent separation. This is a biggie. That human beings are born naturally separated from God. Progressive Christianity teaches that people are born safe 
And the journey of Christian salvation is to appropriate that safeness and then to lean into that safeness and enjoy that safeness all their days. Traditional Christianity teaches innate separation and that somewhere along the line, that child has to come, that human, hopefully in childhood, comes to the recognition that they are not with God. Traditional Christianity says there is good news. You can be reunited with God. Progressive Christianity says there's better news. You have never been separated. Traditional Christianity says the good news is you can be reunited with God. Progressive Christianity says the great news is there is no need. So the good news we never really needed. The great news we never really heard. And the great news is God has always been with us and there's nothing we can do about it. Now, that is a hugely different modality. That's a hugely different idea. I remember walking around uh, one of the large uh, evangelical churches here in this town a, sh a few years ago. I was looking at their, at their buildings and, and the outlay of their children's program and we were looking at carpets and you know structure and the children's pastor spent 45 minutes, and a very sincere good person, but she spent 45 minutes explaining to me that everything they do in the first seven to eight years of a child's life under their care is to try to bring them to the knowledge that they are lost. We're talking about kindergartners, first and second graders. Anybody remember this? Anybody grew up in this? So th this is a big issue. So everything they do is to bring children to the awareness that they are lost and separated from God and there is eternal consequence there's an eternal consequence called hell. But those children can be reunited with God. So what is called the good news, you can be reunited with God, is built on an assumption of really horrible news, and that is that something somewhere has made you so inherently flawed that God cannot be with you, even as a child. Now, we've had, always had trouble with that doctrine, so on the Catholic side of things, we built the doctrine of limbo and purgatory to kind of offset that, and in the Protestant form, we didn't have purgatory and limbo, but what did we build into the Protestant form to kind of mitigate the idea of children uh, being lost? What's it called? Okay, there's about as much room, there's about as much space in the Bible that speaks to age of accountability as there is purgatory. But I love both of those doctrines. You know why? Because both of those doctrines are two camps of the church saying, it just can't be. We have intuited some things that we could not articulate in our orthodoxy, so we had to build in these caveat doctrines. And the church is now beginning to recognize these doctrines aren't even necessary. So the line between progressive Christianity and traditional Christianity is drawn on the grounds of salvation. And we believe that the message of inherent union is actually taught in the biblical text. We believe that the text itself does not have to be abandoned or jettisoned, but we literally believe that in our stories that we've been reading one way, in those stories are the seeds of their own reformation if we just read them with the eyes of the Spirit. We believe Progressive Christianity teaches that the Holy Spirit leads and guides us into truth as human consciousness has the capacity to hear these things. God doesn't change God's mind through the years, but human capacity grows and we have the capacity to see things that we've never seen before.
And that's been happening in the church ever since the beginning of, uh, of the church. Four stories that we believe teach inherent union versus inherent separation. The creation story. That's the primal story which we, Roy, have taught forever. These children are separated from God because of the nature of this story, because of the narrative of this story. We taught that God is a holy God, and the story teaches very clearly that when people sin, it separates them from God because the nature of God's character is such that holiness means God cannot be with us in our sin, so God separates. And then there has to be a sacrificial process made by the humans that somehow brings them into a reunited position with God. That's the way we've always read the story. Adam and Eve sinned, and God kicked them out of God's presence, right? And so they entered into a world in need of salvation. And yet rereading the story, that's not what the story says at all. The story does not build a sin, separation, sacrifice, salvation model. The story actually proposes a shame, estrangement, and healing model. The Bible says that the serpent came to Eve. And the serpent essentially taught Eve a message that is very similar to what the Christian church has often taught people. This is interesting. The serpent did not come to Eve and tempt her first and primarily to sin. He said, well, I thought that's what it said. It said he came, the serpent came and said, here's a fruit, you need to eat it. It's not what the story says. The serpent came to a woman, and let me ask you this, did, did Eve believe in, that she was in union with God, or did Eve believe she was separated from God? She clearly in the story believed she had union with God. And the serpent came with the intention, not simply to get her to eat the fruit, but to question her union with God, right? Because the serpent came and said to her, this is where we get distracted, the serpent said, what did God say about that fruit? And Eve said, well, God said that I shouldn't eat of it. And at that point, she feels no temptation. She's just stating what God said. And the serpent essentially said, it's a lie. So what's the serpent saying to her? The serpent is saying the nature of your relationship with God is not what you thought it was. What if somebody came to you and said, hey, your spouse, you know those trips that they always take on Thursday that they're going to Chicago and doing business? Yeah. And they looked at you and they said, and they provided evidence that what you thought had been happening in those trips was not what was happening at all. What are they doing? They are telling you that the way you understand your relationship is built on a lie and it is not true. The serpent was essentially saying to Eve, you think you have union with God and an honest, loving, mutual relationship. And the serpent first did not say the fruit is good. The serpent first said God is bad and you do not have union with God. So Eve's first temptation was to believe that she was separated from God. And then, interestingly, as soon as the serpent convinced her that she was separated from God and did not have a united relationship with God, the serpent then offered a solution to remedy that. Isn't that interesting? 
You tell somebody who's not separated from God that they are separated from God and then tell them you have the remedy for the thing they don't need a remedy for. Serpent said, but if you will eat that fruit, you'll be like God. In other words, you can reunite to the very thing that you thought you had by doing the wrong thing. So the story is she was tempted to shame. The shame or the sense of estrangement led her to sin. And as soon as she sinned, she felt even more shame. And then the Bible said in, in the deluge of that shame, as she was inundated with shame, her sense that she was separated from God. She knew she was separated from God because God was lying to her. Not true. She sinned, felt more shame, and now knew that she had transgressed. God was even going to be more separated from her. And yet the story doesn't say in response to her sin, she ran to the meeting place and said, God, would you please come down? And God said, I can't because I'm holy. The Bible says that in spite of her sin, Sharon, the Bible says that God came. And she and Adam heard the footsteps of God, the indirect sound of God's coming. She heard the footsteps of God, and when she heard the footsteps of God, what did she do? She hid. She was estranged. She felt separated from God, and in her sense of separation, what did she do? She covered herself in fig leaves. Adam covered himself in fig leaves, and they hid behind the trees. So they estranged themselves even more. The reality is God was behind the trees, God was behind the fig leaves because God is everywhere and that's what David finally realized one day when he said, if I made my bed in hell, I can't get away from you. And God's footsteps caused them to hide, reinforcing the estrangement. Estrangement is not technical separation. Estrangement is a psychological sense of separation that isn't true. And God, as the great therapist, stood a long way off, stopped, because God knew the sound of God's footsteps scared them. God was coming to heal, and yet God's attempt to heal was subverted. They were always believing the wrong thing about God. And God said, where are you? And God's voice coaxed them out from behind the trees, and they said, we're here. And God said, why are you hiding? And they said, we are naked. Do you remember? Before they fell prey to the temptation, they were naked and what? Not. The Bible doesn't say they were naked and not sinful because sin wasn't the issue. They were naked and not ashamed. The issue was shame. This sense of inherent not enoughness. This sense that I am not united with God. God and I are not together. That's the temptation. They were naked and not ashamed, and now they are naked and ashamed. And God said to them, who told you you were naked? Coax them closer, and God in the presence of sinners, God capable of being with sinners, took the fig leaves off, and in their nakedness they blushed, and an animal died, animal skins were made, and they were covered with animal skins. The first act of propitiation or covering in Scripture, animal sacrifice, animal covering, was it covering their sin so God could be with them, or was it covering their shame so they could be with God? You see, you see the, the difference. 
Our story actually has the seeds of its own reformation in it. They didn't show up and say, God, come down. And God said, I can't, I'm holy. But if you make the right sacrifice, build a religious system that can bring you back into my presence, I will come down. God came down and ministered to their shame. Love covers a multitude of sins, not blood. Blood, sacrifice, animals, all of that covers shame. So... This is not God being made comfortable, it's us. Second story, the prodigal was born at home. The prodigal is a type of every human who's ever lived. The prodigal was born in union with the father. The prodigal's journey was not a linear journey from child of the devil to child of the father. The prodigal's journey was a circular journey from child of the father, a long prodigal journey and finally, the prodigal salvation moment was when the prodigal did not become something he wasn't, but came home to who he was. And the entire journey was to appropriate what he had not been able to appropriate in the beginning. But the story really wasn't about the prodigal. The story was about the elder brother because at the beginning of the story, Jesus was sitting with sinners and tax collectors. And as he was sitting there, the religious folk came up and said, hey, you're a rabbi. You shouldn't sit with sinners because as a representative of God, God doesn't abide sin and you're representing God improperly. Jesus said, can I tell you a story? And he told them three stories. He said, if a lady had 10 coins, she lost one. She left the nine, went and found the one a shepherd had a hundred sheep, had 99 of them one night, all the way home to the barn, realized there was one missing, went out and found the one, brought it home. There was rejoicing. And then there was a man who had two sons. And Jesus said when the prodigal came home, the father went and fell on him. And the prodigal was not experiencing separation because of his sin, but the prodigal was experiencing estrangement because of his shame, because love covers a multitude of sins. And when the father fell on him, covering him, as love always does, what did the son do? The son did not embrace the love. The son said, no, I am not worthy. I do not deserve this. That's why we don't like that kind of music here. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve this. You should not love me. The father literally, to that son, as the son was wallowing in his shame, incapable. This was not the reticence of the father because of the son's sin. This was the reticence of the son because of his own shame. And the son said, I don't deserve this. And the father said quickly, kill a fatted calf. And again in the Bible, an animal dies. Question, did the animal have to die so the father could come out and the boy's sins would be covered and the father could be comfortable with him? Or did the animal die to quell the boy's shame? It's obviously the latter. So another animal dies to cover shame. And the father throws a party, and the father is essentially saying, so this is a picture of the salvific cross. The salvific cross isn't Jesus saying to the father, can you be with them now? But the cross is Jesus saying to humanity, can you now believe God has always been with you? This is not, the cross is not a coaxing of God into the presence of people. The cross is a coaxing of people into the presence of God and an ultimate statement of God's solidarity with humanity, even in death. And so, Jesus tells the Pharisees, as the party was raging, the father realized that one of his sons was lost. So the stories were about a lost coin, a lost sheep, 
and a lost son and the prodigal wasn't the lost son because she went looking for the coin the shepherd went looking for the sheep and the father went looking for the son he never went looking for the prodigal he went looking for the elder brother Jesus was saying to the religious leaders who had built the religious system of appeasement you're the ones who are lost and the father went to the elder brother sat down beside him and said why aren't you at your brother's party and the elder brother did not say because you shouldn't throw him a party it's not what he said he said this boy of yours has spoiled your money and lived a debauched life and you're throwing a party for him and then he didn't say and you shouldn't do that he literally said and you threw a party for him and then he gave away the secret he looked at the father and said and you've never thrown a party for me even though I've been here slaving my whole life so the prodigal went out and became a slave the elder brother stayed on the front pew of a church and had always been a slave the elder brother and the prodigal believed the same thing they did not appropriate the union they had with their father the salvation journey is not becoming something you're not it's recognizing what you've always been that's a big difference so back in the hallways right now children are not being taught you need to come to a saving relationship with Jesus you are bad you are lost there's nothing good in you until you get Jesus in your heart at seven down beside your bed that's not what they're being taught they're being taught you were made in the image of God you are a child everything the father everything God has is yours you need to recognize your identity and lean into your belovedness because you've never been anything other than that now can you say amen? Okay, the last one, and then we're going to take an offering and sing a little bit, and then we'll go home. Here's the last one. Jesus, tempted on all points, but the writer of Scripture said he was without sin. And yet the life of Jesus teaches us clearly his grave temptation was not sin, it was shame. Bookending the story of Jesus, Jesus was baptized and upon his baptism he heard a voice say, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Jesus as the model for all humanity is hearing inherent belovedness. He is the God-man, typing God and man. You are my beloved son. Immediately the Bible said he was driven into the wilderness where he was tempted. The Christian church has always said, so Jesus was driven into the wilderness and he was tempted, Linda, by sin. No, he wasn't. The second Adam now tempted the way the first Adam and Eve were tempted. The serpent comes, this time in the form of this tempter named Satan. The serpent comes to Jesus. Jesus is wet with the waters of his baptism, ringing in his ears as you are my beloved son. And as he is believing he is the beloved son, before he's performed one miracle, hung on one cross, got out of one grave, walked on the water, he's not done anything yet except work in a carpenter shop. And the father says, you are my beloved son, not by whom I'm well pleased, but in whom I'm well pleased. Inherent belovedness. And Satan comes to him in the wilderness and says, if you are the son of God, and he doesn't tempt him with a prostitute or some raw sin. 
He looks at a stone and says, turn that stone into bread and feed yourself. Turning stone into bread is not sin. The temptation was not to sin. He took him up to a high place and said, if you're the beloved son of God, throw yourself down and see if God saves you. The temptation was to question his identity, the inherent identity of belovedness. The temptation was shame, not sin. Jesus would later take loaves and fishes and do miracles with them. He would walk on water. He would defy physics. He could have turned stone into bread to feed himself. There's no sin there. But Jesus would not eat the fruit. He would not turn the stone into bread. He would not perform the miracle to justify his belovedness. He refused the temptation of shame and estrangement. And then he gets all the way to the end and he's hanging on the cross and shame hits him hard. Not enoughness hits him hard. And the one, go with orthodoxy, the one who never fell prey to sin fell prey to shame. Because if orthodoxy is right, Steve, Jesus is God. Roy, I'm fine with orthodoxy. He's God. He's not God in a body. That body was God. Stick with orthodoxy on this one. And from the cross, Jesus said, My God, my God, say it with me, why have you forsaken me? You know what that was? That was the lie that Jesus fell prey to. It was the worst thing Jesus ever said and simultaneously the best thing he ever said. Because I want to tell you, sin is powerful, but it didn't get him. Shame is so powerful that God living a human life felt it so strong. God does not have the capacity to forsake God. Jesus was God, and Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is not separation, because separation is not technically possible. It is estrangement. I'll tell you how powerful shame is. I'll tell you how powerful where you live and how much money you make and what your body looks like. I'll tell you how powerful not enoughness is that even when God lived a human life, things got so hard that cotton, God even questioned the presence of God. Shame is so tough that when God lived a human life, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the next statement, reversed himself and said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Jesus was not forsaken by God because he was God, but shame is so profoundly powerful that even God feels it in human form. And so the reformation of the Christian church is to realize sin is a problem, but when that little five-year-old girl is told that she's fat, when that little five-year-old girl is told that her nose doesn't look right, my little 12-year-old girl on the way over here looked at me and said, Dad, my smile is the ugliest smile I've ever seen. When a little 12-year-old girl who was once a five-year-old girl was told her body wasn't right, now she's 12 and her teeth aren't going the right direction and the braces aren't helping and she was 
tearing and Michael sitting in the back seat, Kofal, her little buddy, and he says, that's not true, Nina. And she looked at her picture and she slammed it. She said, yes, it is. And Barbara, she told me she's going to learn how to smile with her lips closed. Now, if, I'll tell you, I pray to God it doesn't happen. I, I, don't, I trust that it won't. But when a little 14, 15-year-old girl is cutting herself or running her finger down her throat and battling bulimia or sleeping around with some boys and the church immediately says, you know what we've got here? We've got a sin problem. Do you know how wrong we have been? Her problem is not first sin. Is it sin? Yes, but sin is secondary. The church has made a tragic mistake we have said the first temptation is sin, it yields shame, and if we'll correct sin, the shame will take care of itself. The story doesn't tell that. The story says if you get identity right, get belovedness right, get secure in the presence of God right, when you cure the shame issue, the sin thing has a remarkable way of clearing itself up. So when we are harping on sin and calling that the gospel, we're actually creating the very illness that God has come to heal. It is not sin, separation, sacrifice, and salvation. The story is shame, vulnerability, hiding, healing, and recognizing who we've always been. Can you say amen? That, brothers and sisters, yes, let's go ahead and clap. Matt, come and let's... I just wanted, and there's, that's 14 messages in one, but I wanted to give you a thumbnail sketch. We have an identity here that is worth hanging in here and doing this work. The church, this city needs to hear that message, but churches everywhere, the Christian church needs to quit telling our children and people that they're separated from God, and we need to tell them to come home to whom they've always been. And if a party gets thrown, it ain't because another name has been written down in glory, it's because somebody finally realized that their name's always been written down in glory and that is worth building a church on and that's going to reform the church okay amen all right good